0: This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin, the JPB Foundation,
1: Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jack Ford. When President Ronald Reagan designated November as National Alzheimer's Disease Awareness Month back in 1983, fewer than 2 million Americans lived with the disease. Today, that number has soared to more than 5 million people. And two-thirds of those with Alzheimer's are women. And despite extensive medical research, the reason behind that trend has yet to be unearthed. At an estimated $277 billion cost every year, the economic toll of the disease is immense. But the emotional toll on the one in every two American families impacted by Alzheimer's is far greater. For journalist and author, and a friend of many years, Maria Shriver, the effects of Alzheimer's are personal. Her father, Sergeant Shriver, was diagnosed back in the early 2000s, passed away eight years later in 2011. Maria's experience led her to found the nonprofit organization, the Women's Alzheimer's Movement. And I am very pleased to welcome her to the program. Maria, it's always so good to see you.
2: Nice to see you, Jack. And thank you for taking some time to spotlight this issue.
1: We're happy to. Let me go back to to when your dad was diagnosed. Mm -hmm. At that time, did you have any idea what that disease really meant for both him and for you and other family members?
2: None. Uh, I didn't realize that all of us would process it differently. It was obviously different from my mother than it was for the five of us. It was different for the grandchildren. It was different for people who had worked alongside of him for years. So I think every case of Alzheimer's, as every doctor has said to me, is its own unique case. And I think families impact it individually, collectively and differently.
1: I mentioned in the introduction about you as a consequence of this, founding the women's Alzheimer's movement. Why?
2: Because uh, nobody was focused on women, and nobody was focused on why women are getting it more often than men. So, I had gone to the Alzheimer's Association when I was First Lady of California and said, "I think this is impacting women differently, and I think somebody should focus on that." And they, another researcher, was always said to me, "Oh, it's just because women live longer." But then they partnered with me, and we produced the Shriver Report in collaboration, where we reported for the very first time that this was a. Women's disease. So women are two thirds, as you mentioned, of the cases. They're also two thirds of the caregivers in our country. And uh, as anybody who is involved in caregiving and caretaking of someone with Alzheimer's or another dementia, it's an overwhelming. undertaking. And so I have been pushing to fund research on women. And I always say that's not sexist. It's just smart. So we can understand how women's bodies and women's brains operate differently, which will, I think, help us change the future for all minds. And the women's Alzheimer's movement is dedicated to getting this story out there, to funding the research, to educating women and getting them involved in pushing the needle.
1: Is it accurate for us to be describing this as a a national emergency, a national crisis right now? Oh, totally.
2: Yeah, talk to any of the people, not only who have it, but the millions, as I said, who are impacted in their families, who are caregiving, who are stopping jobs, who are running through their savings. You put out the figure of what it's costing Our country. Um, And that doesn't even mention, as I said, all the unpaid caregivers. So we have a caregiving crisis. We have an Alzheimer's and dementia crisis. Uh, We put out an op ed uh, on World Alzheimer's Day challenging elected officials to put together smart Alzheimer's plans for their state in their cities. Uh, businesses need to talk and develop caregiving plans because so many people are working and trying to parent and also take uh, loved ones to doctor's offices. We should be speaking to doctors about diagnosing uh, Alzheimer's and dementia early so people can get in clinical trials. We're trying to reach individuals to tell them to be aware of their own cognitive health, to exercise, to prioritize sleep, to decrease sugar, Uh, trying to get into minority communities because this disease is uh, very focused in the Latino and African-American communities. So there's a lot lot of education that has to go on, a lot of awareness that has to go on. But for the families that are knee-deep in this and for the government, this is already a crisis. This is a tsunami. This is a Category 5.
1: I want to talk with you about some of those elements that you just mentioned in a second. But I'm curious about your thoughts. If we go back to President Kennedy and his declaration that the U.S. wanted to put a man on the moon, and literally within a decade, within a decade, we did that. And oftentimes you hear people say, especially when they're talking about research for treatment for diseases, hear people lamenting the fact, well, if we could put a man on the moon in less than a decade, why can't we find a cause for Alzheimer's, a cure for Alzheimer's, at least something more than what we have? What do you think the answer to that is?
2: Well, I think it's a declaration by a president. I think that changes the trajectory of whatever the president declares is an emergency, is a focus, is a mission. So if we had a president who stood up and said, I'm going to increase NIH funding and for Alzheimer's, for cancer, and I'm going to be a science president, I'm going to be a medicine president, I'm going to make it a priority uh, to focus on prevention, to focus on wellness, uh, we would have... Have a different trajectory for this disease. We need increased funding for Alzheimer's, uh, and we need someone to declare it a moonshot. I testified uh, about that exact thing. I used those exact words many years ago saying, you know, if we put a man on the moon, we can definitely put our minds together and solve this crisis. We may not cure it, but we may get a pill or we may get multiple approaches. Uh, We can slow it down, prevent it. So anybody who has cognitive impairment, even if we slow it down, that saves a family a lot of money and a lot of heartache. And it will save the country millions, if not billions.
1: As you know, if you look around now, we have become terribly partisan in our politics. We hear the the word tribal even in our politics. But if you look at this issue, this is not a partisan issue. This, no, this, is, this is an existence. It's one of the few you can point to and say, there is no partisan element to this whatsoever. And yet, it, you, we don't seem to get the investment, literally, figuratively, and emotionally, into this issue that you would expect, especially from the governments. Why do you think there's, there's that, that inability, I don't want to call it reluctance or resistance, but why do you think we're not seeing that sort of all-hands-on-deck investment in this?
2: Well, I think we have seen an increased investment and that has come through bipartisan cooperation and that has come from people testifying and so many activists and advocates storming the hill and asking for it, so that has happened. It hasn't happened at the level that those of us who are in this space want it to, but it is increasing. So that's a good sign. And that tells me that it's just going to get more. I think if more people started to run on this, if more people started to focus on um, increased NIH funding, uh, if, you know, we focused on looking at women, that would be a priority. But I think, you know, we as a country rally around what elected officials, what presidents say is our priority, whether it was way back, whether it was the moon, whether it was building infrastructure, whether it's climate. And so we haven't had a president who said, Alzheimer's is the issue, all hands on deck. Let's solve this crisis. Let's get a hold of this. So I'm hopeful that we will find people in this midterm election who are running, who will say, look it, I'm gonna make this a priority. I'm hopeful that we're going to have mayors and governors who say, I'm gonna appoint and Alzheimer's and dementia czar in my state. I'm gonna make sure that I hold a summit in my state and set goals for my state. I'm gonna make sure I tap into the most innovative and most far-reaching thinkers in my state. I'm gonna charge uh, young people who go to colleges in my state to become caregivers in my state. I'm gonna make this part of my state of the state, my state of the city, and for those who are running for national office, that they're gonna say, this is a priority for me.
1: Let's talk about what, what has been happening, some degree of progress here. It, it, compared to when you first got involved in this, what sort of right. progress do you think we've made? Let's, let's talk medically now. What sort of progress have we made in, in terms of, let's start with the big picture, which is finding some sort of cure for Alzheimer's?
2: Well, we don't have that. Uh, but we have a lot of people saying, okay, we're going to look now at people who are younger. We're going to look at women. Uh, When I started in this, nobody did that, uh, or very few, I would say. But so we're going to say like, okay, wow, we now understand this is 20, maybe 30 years in the brain. We've got to start looking at younger people. We've got to have younger people participate in clinical trials. We now understand that it might not be a one-stop approach. Uh, There's some innovative things going on in that space. We do recognize that the American lifestyle may be a contributing factor. Um, Let's look at that. Let's talk about what we know helps. We know exercise helps. We know sleep is a time for the brain to regenerate. We know that helps. We know that we need to move. We know that we need a Mediterranean diet is helpful. We know meditation is helpful. So, when I first started in the space, nobody was talking about any of that. So, there are things, there's a, an explosion, I think, of people who are interested in this space now. Uh, people are interested in longevity. They're interested in, wow, medicine can keep a body alive for a lot longer. But, what quality of life is that? How do we keep? The mind active. How do we continue to learn? What does longevity, healthy longevity, really look like? So I'm encouraged. I'm hopeful. I'm not hopeless. Um, and I, I kind of reach out to people and say, "Look, it. This is a um, a personal responsibility. This is a professional uh, challenge. It's a public space challenge. And if we all work together." Uh, political parties work together, businesses and individuals work together and also policy works with that. We can harness this disease. We can wipe that out. I firmly believe that we can do that in my lifetime.
1: Do you think there are misconceptions out there surrounding this disease that in some way impede yes, certainly our that. awareness, our understanding and impede how we should be dealing with this disease?
2: absolutely the women's alzheimer's and the bipartisan policy institute last year did a poll and it was really amazing to me that with all the information that's out there how ill-informed uh people are people think well if it didn't run in my family i can't get it that's wrong so every single person should be aware that alzheimer's can impact them so every single person thinks like oh If, you know, I have a gene, I'm definitely going to get it. That's not true either, right? Everybody thinks this is something that just is a natural part of aging. Wrong again. People think, oh, I'll worry about that when I'm 80. Big mistake. You should be thinking about it when you're 30. That is really important. Your brain begins to change very early on. How you treat your brain when you're 30, 40, 50 will have impact when you're 60, 70, and 80. I didn't know. I wish I had known that when I was 30. Also, women who are perimenopausal and menopausal, they need to be talking to their doctors because estrogen, hormone replacement, those are conversations that women should be having because it directly impacts their brain. So those things that I just mentioned to you, Jack nobody was talking about when my dad was first diagnosed. And I think people are also completely ill-informed about the cost of caregiving. Who's going to do the caregiving? uh, Where do they go for caregiving? Um, I was really interested in that poll we did that said people thought, oh, my children are going to care for me. But no one had talked to their children. No no one had set aside money for their children to care for them. So we are ill-equipped. We need to have a national conversation. I know people say that all the time, but these are conversations I think that should start at kitchen tables, in every condo, apartment, community center, and home in our country.
1: You've touched base on a couple of the things, but I want to ask you specifically. I imagine that, that frequently people come up to you after some of these conversations that you're having or the events that you're at, and, and they say to you, what should I do? What should I do for right. myself and what yeah. can I do in, in terms of uh, our campaign to do something about this insidious disease? What do you tell them about themselves and then how they can help in the bigger picture?
2: Good question. So first and foremost, I tell them to move. You gotta exercise. Every single doctor researcher said if you could get one thing across to people, that the kind of sedentary American lifestyle is killing them. So people should move. They should prioritize their sleep. That is, as I said, when the brain regenerates itself. Uh, I tell them, try meditation. I started it way late in life. I wish I'd started it earlier. It's a time for your brain to calm down and once again, clear itself. Food. Uh, Wow, I wish I'd known this a lot earlier. Get off of processed food. Adopt, if you can, a Mediterranean style diet. Uh, We're seeing a lot of success with people with changing their diet. If you have a loved one who's in a memory care facility or something, go in and argue to have the food in that facility change to benefit the brain. Um, I tell them to donate if they can to gender based research or just to research on Alzheimer's, the women's Alzheimer's movement. Would love your support. And by that, I mean your financial support, your uh, intellectual support. I'd like you to go out and make sure that you tell what I'm saying to people you love. If you have a parent who's in their 60s or 70s, look at what they're eating. Talk to them about their cognitive health. I tell people to ask their primary doctors. Talk to me about my, you know, my cognitive health. Do you have a cognitive baseline? If you're 50, take one. Um, that's scary. I did it. It's scary. Um, and you know, do everything you can to keep learning, keep growing, keep being curious and keep working.
1: Last question for you. When we look at those numbers that, that we talked about at the beginning and throughout our conversation, they sound so terribly bleak and so terribly foreboding. Is there cause you think for optimism?
2: Yes, as I said, I'm really optimistic. I think, you know, the worst thing is to go, oh, it's hopeless, let me close and go eat, you know, you know, 20 Swedish fish or something, you know, which is what I might have done in the <laughs> past. But I think look at, I think this is a challenge, but it's all of our challenge. I haven't met a person who doesn't want to live long enough to remember their grandchildren's name. I haven't met a person who wants to who doesn't want to grow Uh, older, with their cognitive skills intact, right? This is something we can all agree on. We all want, we all desire. Nobody wants to be a burden to their children. Um, So this is something that affects us all. We all have a brain. We should all want to be focused on this. And I think people are scared of growing old in this country. Alzheimer's, they perceive it to be an old person's disease. So we need to remarket it. I'm hopeful about that. Uh, The women's Alzheimer's movement is very aggressive in that space, creative, talking to young people, bridging generations. We have to also honor uh, those of us in communities who are aging. Right. How do we want to take care of people who are aging in our country? Who are we as a country? Do we value people who are older, right? What is our concept of care? I'm enthusiastic about that conversation. I see tremendous possibilities in that space. I see a lot of young people who want to become caregivers, who want to get involved in this space, who want to reshape it. So there's a lot to be hopeful about, uh, but there's also a lot of work to do.
1: Well, Maria, i got to tell you that this conversation, the conversations you're having out there are so helpful, not just to those of us who've lived through the travails and the tragedy of this disease, but, but for everybody else out there who needs to know and to act, and as you said, to move. It is always a pleasure to talk with you, catch up with you, and, and thank, thank you, you so Jack. much so for... Thank
2: nice to see you. I know.
1: Thank you, Salami. So I <laughs> wish so. we were sitting in the same room, but we'll do that sometime soon. But again, I our, try our try. thanks to you for the conversation, for all you're doing. You be well, and we'll talk soon. Thank you, Jack. Beloved actor Marilou Henner, best known for her acting career, particularly among many of us for her role in the hit sitcom Taxi, but more recently also well known for her series of best-selling health and fitness books. She's also, you may have heard, one of the few people in the world known to have highly superior autobiographical memory, which allows her to recall almost every day of her life. And those memories of how she and her husband, Michael Brown, stood together in the face of cancer and triumphed without chemotherapy or radiation is the subject of their newest book. It's called Changing Normal, How I Helped My Husband Beat Cancer. And we're delighted that Mary Lou Henner and Michael Brown are with us today to talk about this.
3: Thank you so much for having us. We're
1: very happy to have you for so many reasons. Let's set the stage for this, to understand this book and understand the relationship here. And Mary Lou, I'll ask you to, to tell the story you had known each other years before. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. we Around 2003, you reconnected. How'd
3: that happen? Right. Well, we knew each other in college at the University of Chicago, college freshman. Ran into each other in a courthouse after I left school to become a professional actress. I was getting married to my first husband. So eight years after I left school, we ran into each other in the hallway in a courthouse in New Orleans, far from University of Chicago. And then after my second divorce was final, like six months later, 2003, Michael called me out of nowhere. We hadn't seen each other in 22 years. It was shocking to me, but he, Called, I was excited because I always had like a little special feeling about him and then within a week we were saying I love you we're gonna spend the rest of our lives together and Two months into our relationship.
1: Well, let's talk about that because yeah. you have what sounds like a a a marvelous Storybook sort of getting back together here the thunderbolt strikes you both But then another type of thunderbolt hits you Michael. What's that?
0: Exactly well uh, two months into our relationship. I was diagnosed with advanced stage bladder cancer AND uh, IT WAS VERY SHOCKING. AND I HAD BEEN SYMPTOMATIC FOR TWO YEARS, BUT I'D BEEN GOING THE VERY CONVENTIONAL DOCTOR ROUTE. I WENT TO MY UROLOGIST. HE KEPT MISDIAGNOSING ME. HE FINALLY RETIRED, WHICH MEANT I GOT A NEW SPECIALIST, A NEW UROLOGIST, AND HE WENT IN AND IMMEDIATELY FOUND THE CANCER. And so there I was with uh, advanced stage bladder cancer and a new relationship with Mary Lou. So. Well,
1: yeah. Fortunately, you had the second part of that equation, but <laughs> <laughs> not the first. Um, I, I'm going to ask you to do this. I'm going to ask you to explain for us the, the title here, Changing Normal. And then I want to talk about some specifics about what you do. But I, I think sure. titles are always fascinating and compelling when you try to get a sense of what they mean. So what does Changing Normal mean?
3: Well, I always say, you know, if you think of your body as a field of soil and a weed sprouts, it's not enough just to cut out that weed and then continue doing whatever you were doing for that field of soil so you get more weeds, and the idea of doing something differently, lovingly tending to it, uh, putting in different fertilizer, some kind of change the normal of what it is that you're doing if you want a new result. So what happened was there was somebody in Michael's family who got diagnosed with cancer around the same time, and her doctor said, we're going to give you chemo, we're going to give you surgery, and you can get back to normal in no time. And I said to Michael, no, she can't go back to normal. She's got to make some changes. You've got to change normal. Otherwise, you're going to end up right back where you were. You know, so that's how the title of the book came about.
1: When you, when you looked, the two of you together, and you looked at your life, and, and now obviously you're looking at, at, at some, some difficulties that you're experiencing here. But when you look back at your life, and Michael, I'll ask you first, and then, then lou what your observations are. What did you find about how you had been living your life that you came to realize needed to get changed?
0: Well, yeah, that's a big part of the book, is the intro of the book is how I got cancer. And, uh, you know, I found out very early in my health journey here after I got diagnosed that I needed to figure out what I had done, what I was doing to cause this cancer, or at least give it the opportunity to to grow like it did. And uh, I found in in my past uh, toxic exposures, uh, heavy, heavy metal exposure, stress, and this had been going on my whole life um, from childhood. And uh, from that examination of my past, I realized I needed to change my future. I needed to change my normal to
1: have a future. Exactly. Certainly, Mary you get involved. You, I've seen you've been referred to as sort of a doctor concierge. Right. You know, somebody my who my friends
3: have called me for years. Exactly. So yeah. you
1: get involved now, and 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 with all of the focus you've had recently on health and well-being, you now have this, you know, literally in your home. So what did you both decide to do? How did you decide to fight this that changed your normal?
3: Well, what happened was we, um, you know, I knew I wanted to take Michael to my doctors, but I said, okay, but well, let's go see some of the more conventional, you know, types of doctors. And we went to see the number one bladder cancer specialist who happened to be in Los Angeles. We went to see him. He, we walked in, and it's the introduction of the book. Um, he says, this is your lucky day. He says, um, you know, uh, it, I have a cancellation on Wednesday. He takes out a diagram and goes, I'm going to take out the bladder. I'm going to take out the prostate. I'm going to pull down a piece of your intestines and make a neobladder. And he looks at us because we've got these horrified looks on our faces. And he says, and don't worry if you two want to have sex. We're going to run a small hose up his penis. And anytime you want to have sex, you just pump it up six times. And I said, well, can we have the seven pump model? Because we're a sexy couple. And I said, and what about health, nutrition? He went, oh, go have all the steak and highballs you want. So we left. Okay, bye, bye. We'll let you know about Wednesday. We walked in silence down to the parking lot, and Michael said, "I'm not losing my organs." And I said, "I don't think you have to. Let's go to my doctors. And my doctors are integrative medicine doctors who are full AMA, but but look at the body holistically. Don't just isolate it."
1: You mentioned something before when you talk about the message here, so that people understand. You're not saying never go to a oh, traditional oh, doctor. No. You're you're say, tell tell us what you're saying. What the oh, message no, I'm is saying, for this?
3: You know, complement the 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 typical therapies, do something with your typical uh, you know, the typical surgeries or chemo or whatever. He he chose not to have chemo and radiation and it didn't end up needing it because he didn't have to go through the surgeries and everything else and he went into remission. He's been in remission 12 and a half years, not just on bladder cancer, but also Lung cancer was diagnosed two months later. You got a double header. But, you know, I knew that, that, uh, you know, I got into health because my parents died young. And I just felt like if no matter what he decides to do, trying some of these other things, it can only fortify his immune system and make him feel at least like he's in a little bit of control, as he always says.
0: So, Michael, you've, you've changed your normal? Absolutely. I began changing it even before the diagnosis. I got with Mary Lou and she's pretty forceful about her <laughs> lifestyle and the makeover that she was trying to work on me before the diagnosis. Haircut, clothes, uh, you know. <laughs> but it's, it's funny, over the years, even, you know, the, the year that we fought the cancer or six months in, in actual fact, I changed my normal in profound ways in terms of my diet and uh, my habits, the way I dealt with my stress, uh, having a love of my life in my life and having someone to love and someone to love me. Uh, profoundly and changed me. Uh, since then, because cancer is a chronic disease, it's uh, once you get it, uh, you need to be on alert. And if you've changed your normal, if you've done things to help the conventional medicine do its magic and, and actually get into remission, you need to stay vigilant, or it's going to come back. And and that's so. In it's some ways, it's not
1: a one disease approach to your life. It's your whole life
0: approach. And especially having two separate cancers, so I had two separate spots to worry about. Yeah.
1: Well, we're, we're so glad you're doing well. Again, the book is called Changing Normal. We're glad you're well. It's always good to
0: see you. Good luck with the book. Thank, Thank you, Jack. Exactly. you well. Appreciate it.